Welcome to From a Woman to a Leader, a podcast dedicated to discussing the challenges and providing tips for women in tech leadership. Hi, I'm your host, Limor Bergman-Gross, and in each episode, we'll hear from other successful women in tech, sharing their stories, insights, and advice. Join us as we empower each other to reach our full potential in the tech industry. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of From a Woman to a Leader. And I'm super excited to have Minakshi here with me today. And we are going to talk about unpacking identity, redefining professionalism. We'll dive deeper into complexities of retaining your own culture and identity in tech. And Minakshi, just a few words about Minakshi. She has a 25-year interdisciplinary career in tech and now serves as personal agility, self, and change leadership coach for mid-level leaders. She focuses on supporting women in technology, particularly those who speak English as a second language in their personal and professional leadership development journeys. So hi, Minakshi. Welcome. Hello, Limor. So lovely to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you so much for being here. And you know, I think your episode is the second one in my season two, which is dedicated mm-hmm. on women of color. And I remember when we talked earlier, you mentioned <laughs> you don't like the term women of color because it can be limited. So can you elaborate why you feel that way and how you prefer to identify regarding your cultural background? Yes, absolutely. I'm so glad you asked me that question. And I'm also grateful that you created the space for me to share my views on that. And I know that this this opinion may not be very popular, but my personal experience, I still remember the conversation I was in very viscerally um, when the person across from me um, referred, was speaking to me and referred to me as a woman of color. And they were being very complimentary, saying, as a woman of color and in technology, your profile is impressive, blah, blah, blah. And I found myself, I had stopped listening after hearing woman of color. And that was the time I realized that I really did not appreciate the term and, and being referred to as one. I've had a lot of thoughts around this for a while, but I hadn't really noticed it until that conversation. And I think for me, it's about, I find that one, it's a label and two, it's limiting. I like the way you, you, said that Um, and I think the main thing is it's not a label that I chose for myself and I think that's where I was reflecting on this question for myself it's not it's not a way I would describe myself naturally it doesn't come to me naturally and the other thing is I still think that the the label is rooted in otherness or othering because to me white is a color too so when we say white folks and then people of color to me, it's rooted in that you're still other, right? So it still comes from predominantly the white race being predominant and then the rest of the world. And I think those are some of the reasons why I don't appreciate the term. And I also think, uh, particularly as someone who's lived in the U.S. for the last 15 years, um, my understanding of the history here in general, I think it's it's also a term that's rooted in 
in in the in the horrific past of how the U.S. was formed, right? So I don't appreciate that. So to answer your question of how I would choose to describe myself, uh, if, if I really have to get into the cultural side of things, I would say I'm from India, from the southern part of India of Tamil ancestry, and and that's that's pretty much it for me. Yeah, thank you so much for answering that. And uh, you know, this is very also challenging for me because I I didn't know how to exactly name it because I wanted in season two to highlight women. I don't know if the term intersectional is the right one, but basically providing the spotlight for women who are not white hmm. because, and this is because there is a reason for that, because I see biases I hear, yep. at least from clients yep. I have, biases that they face in the workplace that I haven't experienced as a white woman. I have experienced yep. different biases as a woman, but feel like there is another angle to being not just a woman, but a woman of a certain, you know, race or color. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and you bring up another point here, race and color, right? So uh, in all the independent research and reading that I've done, race is really not even... It's a, it's a human-made construct. It To me, it's all about colorism. It's about the skin tone that causes, uh, that puts you in a position of advantage or, or discrimination. That's That's been my experience as well. So as somebody born and raised in India, I have faced colorism. And to me, color at a point of advantage in India, because I'm, although I'm from the south of India, I'm light much lighter skinned than most folks from South India. And so uh, when when people just look at me, folks in India, when they look at me, they, they don't always assume quickly that I'm from the South. I'm most often mistaken to be from the North because that's where you find people lighter skin. But when I move to the US, my skin color is now a point of disadvantage for me right? because, I, because of who, how I look. So to me, when I look at what's, what has happened in the, in the whole world and what's happening, it's more about colorism. And I think mm. that is that is a fact of life that we all live with. Like we can't, we don't choose our skin tones. We are born with it. But I think that that's the underlying point of discrimination that needs to be focused on, in my opinion. Great point. And I love the term colorism. I, uh, with your permission, I may use it. So yeah, I may... Of course. I can make it. I mean, I, I don't own the term. I've read about it. And yeah. Are Absolutely. you willing to share, um, I mean, actually how, when you moved to the U.S., how the, you mentioned like the color has been from an advantage to a disadvantage. Are you willing to share a little bit about that? Yes. Yeah, so, you know, when I moved to the U.S., so I moved here as an accompanying spouse. My husband, he was transferred with his job and that's how, that's how we moved. Here. And so I had to sort of, I had to restart my career from scratch and I've had, I would say that I also came with a lot of privilege and I continue to live in that. And I'm very aware of that. So number one is the, my ability to read, write and speak English. It may not be with the American accent, but I, I was able. So that was not a barrier for me. Right. The other thing is I have had, I came, I come with a college education to this country. Um, I had 10 plus years of work experience when I came here. Well, that didn't matter much because I had to start from scratch here. But those were, I know a lot of other people who have moved here for whatever reason, those can, those have been barriers, right? 
the ability to speak English, the, the kind of education you've had, how easily are you able to enter the job market here and things like that. The other big privilege is that I moved here. It's it's although I didn't plan it, it's still a matter of choice, right? So there's no it's not because of persecution and I'm not I'm not running from war, none of that. So there's a there's a lot uh, a lot of privilege that I come with and I continue to live in. So my move to the US, my transition into the workplace, I think, was more challenging than from a social point of view, I would say. So like even trying to find jobs, making sure that my experience from India made sense here and, and you know, and, and transferring all of that and, and constantly having to prove that, yes, I can do this. And yeah, maybe maybe I don't have an American sounding name. That doesn't mean I can't speak the language, you know, so things like that. So a lot of assumptions. And then when people actually saw me, depending on their cultural experience, I could be anywhere from and being an Indian to being a Latina to being from Middle East. You know? Interesting. So it was a whole range. And you know, I can, yeah. So I, I think that constantly having to sort of explain my myself in a way and my appearance and uh, my accent. So see, this is the other thing. A lot of people would say, oh, you, you're English. You speak very, very good English. And at the time, I did not have the term for it, which in today's terms, it would be a microaggression because then you're, you know, your your baseline is that, oh, that's a that's a plus, right? Yes, it makes it easier for for folks to communicate with me, but that's not English is just another language. It's a form of communication, like like any other language. So it's not a measure of intelligence or capability or capacity. But so those were some things that I experienced when I moved here. And then of course, in in the in the workplace, once I did find a job and I entered the workforce, I found that. Uh, building relationships at work has been hard for me because there's no common shared cultural context. I, I don't, you know, I'm not familiar with the local sports and music and movies. I have had exposure, but I don't have interest in that, right? So um, forming relationships at work was something that I had to, I, I was constantly watching out for social cues because figuring out what is appropriate and what is not, it took me a bit of time, even though I spoke the language. Yeah, absolutely. And it's very interesting what you mentioned about the accent, because I got actually very similar comment about my accent, not not much after I, I moved to the US on my first job. It was like mm. a very old school company with like uh, those cubicles and uh, like you see in the movies, basically. <laughs> and uh, someone, and I was talking, I was talking to, I don't know, one of the people that reported to me and, and someone else was saying to me after that, you know, you still have an accent. This is something you still have an accent. And I was laughing as I told, I told him, you know what? Not only I still have an accent, I will always have an accent. And I'm, I'm actually proud of my accent. Yes. I see that there's yes. something unique about Absolutely. me. Absolutely. 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 It's very interesting we're talking about accent. So number one, accent bias is, is, is real. It's a thing, right? And hiring decisions, decisions to promote people, accent bias plays a big role in that. And at the same, so one of the my professional experiences is I'm a trained English as a second language teacher, ESL teacher. And I've done a lot of this work with adult learners in India um, as, a, as a trainer and a teacher. And one of the things 
we, we, the company I used to work for at the time, we used to focus on really and really harp on is that we are not about accent training at all. We are going to help you learn the language. It's about the pronunciation, making sure you are understood when you speak the language. But, and I did this work at a time when the call center industry was booming in India, business process outsourcing was booming in India. And even to today in India, you have a lot of this training. And I'm sure any company that's, that's, that has IT-enabled services, BPOs that run BPOs do this kind of training, which is accident neutralization training, right? where we are, you're taught to speak in whatever the neutral accent yeah. is of English, <laughs> right? and you're given English names. So yeah, so it just brought me back <laughs> to that time when you talked about accent. Yeah, and uh, your accent doesn't stop you, right? I mean, uh, you were able to excel and, and, and grow. So do you have any tips on what helped you? I mean, because we do know that there are biases yes. for so many aspects. So how were you able to overcome that? I think my experience as, as an ESL teacher and trainer helped me a lot. Uh, I think the number one thing that it taught me was empathy. Because I... All of my education was in English medium schools. So I have learned English right from my childhood. So I learned three, three different languages. I spoke Tamil at home, learned Hindi because of where we lived at the time. And English was taught in schools. And we learned all three languages in school as well. So to me, I had this advantage of switching between languages. It just comes naturally to me. But people that I worked with who I trained to teach English, they... For them, it was for one first thing was it was an aspirational goal to learn English and to speak English without an accent or with a neutral accent or whatever it may be. And I realized that that was a skill I have had. It became a skill. I, I didn't even know that it was a skill because it was a given. Right. So really having empathy for people who are learning a new language as an adult, because we all know how difficult that is to do. Yeah, because right. So as adults, we want to make meaning. And we won't, we are, we struggle to say things when we don't understand them. But as children, we don't focus on that. As children, we just focus on just, just hearing, listening to the sounds and just repeating it. And then it starts making sense for us, right? But as adults, we need to make sense first. And that's one of the challenges of learning a new language. And, uh, and also that, you know, when in the US a few years ago, I volunteered as an ESL teacher uh, with folks who were, who were new to the country and they're, emigrated as as adults and uh, one of them I remember that this this set of learners this set of adults was they, their mother tongue was is Arabic and I realized the challenge that they had in learning to read and write English because Arabic is right to left yeah. English is left to right and also learning so learning to write was very challenging for them and when I paid attention and also using using a phone, using apps and things like that, uh, they would use it on their phone in Arabic. And then if they had to switch to English, can you imagine that? I mean, I can't say any, I don't know. I don't know any languages that are, that are written from right to left. All the actually, languages know. sorry for stopping you. Actually, I can very much yeah. relate because my uh, mother tongue is Hebrew and Hebrew is also written from right to left. So yeah. I very much relate. I think for me specifically, it wasn't much of a challenge because when I moved to, to the U.S., I already have a pretty good English. Obviously, right. it got better after nine years in the U.S. And uh, yeah, switching from Hebrew and and, uh, and English, yeah, it's a little bit challenging from the right to left. But today with the technology, it's not as hard. Actually, 
till this day, it's very hard for me to write in Hebrew on the computer. Although it sounds kind of funny because I'm used to writing in English. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And see, that's the, that's the impact that languages like English, which I call as, you know, these are all part of your, it's an outcome of uh, colonialism. And India was colonized for more than 200 years. And impact of that that we have experienced is a lot of our native languages are not as spoken as much there. So like, for example, I don't, I struggle to read and write Tamil, which is my mother tongue, but mm-hmm. I can speak it, right? Hindi is the national language. I, I Thankfully, I can still read, write and speak it. But this is the impact that that colonialism has has had and it continues in, uh, uh, till today. And I want to digress slightly here. What I have noticed in the world of tech, for example, I come from a time when software outsourcing was at its boom in India. It still is. A lot of our work is done for clients outside of India. And I've had the experience of being on both sides of that fence, if you will. When I was in India working for a tech company with our clients in the U.S. and then in the U.S. working for a product company where all our clients were local for us here, but our production software and product development happened in India. And, And it was, you know, I was in that space after a gap of 15 years and I noticed that there were several things that had not changed and a lot of it were to do with our cultural how we showed up at work how we show up at, at work as whole, whole selves what does that really mean how we are raised the languages we speak our value systems all of these we bring all of this to our workplace and then to superimpose constructs and ways of working that originated in the English speaking world onto these ecosystems that are that are that come from a totally different culture, totally different language, and then to expect them to just work like it does in the US, for example. And that that was really one of the pivotal moments for me in terms of my career. And I started looking at all of these things and I realized that that's an area that I possibly should focus on in the next phase of my career. But Anyway, the, the point is that English to me, and I didn't realize it when, when I was younger, um, even in India, English is treated as, as a superior skill. Your ability to speak the language is a coveted skill and gets, gets you through doors. It gets you promotions. And that's true till today. So accent bias is a real thing. Um, and it's, it's kind of ironic that it's a thing in, in countries like India that, that were colonized. Yeah. So the your your accent, people people sort of grade you based on how you speak the language. So in India, you mean you're graded based on how you speak the local la- language? No, no. Well, that's kind of universal. Like even here in the U.S., you know, people figure out which state you're from based on the accent yeah. that you have, right? But in India, English most so in in work environments. I have noticed that folks who speak English well, there is an assumption that they are intelligent and capable and, and they have a lot of capacity to do good work. Uh, with the local languages, yes, folks would find out where I'm from and where I'm from not. And so that's a whole other story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. You mentioned a very interesting point about, uh, you know, that there is a bias based on how well you speak the language. And actually, I've seen that not just in, I mean, I've seen that, I haven't lived in India, but I've seen that also in the US, that when you work with people who speak English better, 
there's a bias that they are smarter, they're better. Yes. Yes. And versus someone who speaks not as great and maybe less understood, harder to understand them, then they may be a bias against them as, oh, maybe they're not that smart. When yep. actually it can be quite the opposite. All true. Could not agree with you more. So that's where, you know, the for me personally, developing that sense of empathy towards everyone has helped me a lot, um, especially especially with folks who everyone else thinks, oh, their English is okay, not so great, right? What is the content of what they're trying to communi- communicate? If I can focus on that and make sure that we're able to work together, that's what I focus on. And the other thing around managing this for myself and helping others manage this is um, thinking about language as a medium and English is no different. And the focus always needs to be on the audience because we are all trying to get work done. We are all trying to sell our ideas or ask for feedback. So it's all, it's it's the basis of human interaction. Uh, so how well I am understood, the focus is not on me. It's not about my language competence. competence. It's about how, how am I coming across and is the other person understanding my intent? Yeah. So if we all sort of pause to focus on that, I think that's, that's something that I've, I have been doing and that has served me well. Yeah. So tell us, I mean, I would love to talk about your work. So let's say I'm a woman that with English as a second language, how can you help me? Tell us a little bit maybe about the work that you do. Absolutely. So I do want to add another caveat here. So for the longest time, I used to say English as a second language as well. And then one day I sat down and I started, I think I was writing a, my bio for something. And then I was thinking about it. And I'm like, wait, English is not my second language. You know, I, Hindi was the first language I learned. And then Tamil kind of around the same time. And then Malayalam is another language that I, that I know and speak. And English is somewhere there, right? So it is, it's, it's definitely not my second language. And I'm like, hmm, so what is the term for that? And then I started thinking about words are powerful, right? And uh, so I started thinking about why do I have to call English as a second language and the non-native speakers of English. So these are all terms that as an ESL teacher and trainer, I am, you know, it just comes to naturally to me. And then I started paying attention to all these words. And then I realized that everything is sort of rooted in, in otherness. Um, and then I know so many other people who speak, I don't know, more than five languages in English is one of them. So I, that's when I started saying, oh, folks that speak English as an additional language, because it's hard to say why second, right? And and why are we othering it? Anyway, so what I, the reason I love working with women in tech and then folks who speak English as an additional language, one is that is my lived experience. And I think that there's there's a lot that I can share in terms of my own lived experience and how I navigated my life as an expat. Um, and that's so what I focus on really are around speaking up speaking up in a way that uh, that you're you are heard and listened to drawing your boundaries because there's a lot of cultural stereotypes around um, Indian women Asian women in general how so how do you how do you really make the best of both worlds I think who I am today is truly representative of my Indian roots and and my the American influence Um the what I have learned from working, living and working here in the U.S. is the 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 value for integrity, the value for hard work, and 
the enterprising spirit, uh, taking risks. And these are all sort of, it's a very individualistic society. So these are valued and, and respected. And I come from a collectivist culture. So I feel like blending the two, there's a lot of power in that. And so I, I help my clients figure that out for themselves, really figure out their leadership stance that is authentic to them. I don't have to do something just because I see that's the that's the leadership that's being modeled around me. I need to figure out what my my core values are, who I am, what I stand for, what drives me, what drains me. So that's why I call myself a, a self-leadership coach, because I think the focus needs to be we. Each of us is the most important and most impactful person that we'll ever lead. So I, I start with that with my clients, you know, reminding them that you are the most important, most impactful person you'll ever lead. And how you lead yourself is what will shape how you lead others. Leadership is made out to be this, this well, one for one, it's sort of put on a pedestal. It, it's made inaccessible, I think. And I think that's on purpose. There's this conspiracy around that, in my opinion. Uh, I, I believe that each of us is a leader. And leadership is accessible to us. And we don't have to wait for a title or a promotion or a certain job or whatever. We Each of us is given numerous opportunities to show up as a leader. And it's up to us to recognize that and acknowledge that and, and work to that towards that. So what I help my clients with is really understanding their self, their core values, their core strengths, and how they can utilize all that in building a leadership stance that serves them well, that's authentic to them without compromising on where they come from and who they are. And that's something I think I've learned as an old, as I've grown older. I really wish I had had that wisdom much when I was in my 20s and 30s. So that, and, the, and lastly, I would say is focusing on building your visibility using self-promotion. To me, self-promotion is a leadership skill. It's not enough. Gone are the days when your work spoke for itself. I know. I agree with you. Oh. I see that over and over again. Yeah. And I want to touch one of the points you mentioned about like your authentic self basically leading with authenticity, with your own core values. And as, as someone who is coming as, a, you know, from a different country, from a different culture, from a different language, that adds even more you know, uh, um, challenges because you are you're different than others, you, which is a good thing, right? I mean, in yeah. general, it's a good thing, but a lot of times it can, can be held against you. And uh, one of the things I try to encourage the women I work with is just to keep and, and be proud of, their, of yes. their culture, of what they bring. And I wanted to ask you about that. What's your stance of like, not just about, obviously, we talked about the language, the accent and all that, but everything that you bring with you, your culture, where you come from, how you were raised, all of that. Yep, yep, yep. You know, uh, something that I realized was that I wasn't pausing enough and often to reflect on all of this, all of this that you just said, how how I was raised, what my values were, what what did uh, my parents, um, what kind of an example did they set for me? What did they tell me as I was growing up, you know? And I kind of just went with the flow, just one to the next, one to the next, to the next. So focused on doing that I, I rarely pause to focus on how I'm being and who am I. And when I did have the opportunity to do that, and sadly enough, my 
my point of inflection to do that was when I got burned out at work four, four, five years ago now. And that was my sort of, I had to hit my breaking point for me to really say, okay, I, this is not working for me. I need to figure this out for myself. And I realized one, that I had made work central to my life and I built my life around work, which I, now I know is the is the worst thing to do. Um, but that's the the culture especially in corporate life that you that you that you are raised in if you will uh, so now for me it's it's the other way around my work is a part of my life but my life is at the center of everything and work is one part of it how my what kind of a life do i want to build and how what kind of work do i do for that and that shift has been very 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 uh, prominent for me but going back to the cultural piece and gaining strength from that i'm for me personally, I'm on a mission to decolonize my own heart and mind. I'm realizing more and more that uh, how English as a language has gone from being medium for communication, being a medium to understand to and, and to be understood, how it's gone from that to being the central source of everything I consume. And what that means is I am disconnected from my my culture, my religion, all the ancient wisdom that resides in my culture and, and religion, because I don't read those, for example, reading a scripture, I still prefer to read something in English. Like I can read Sanskrit because it's the same script as Hindi. Uh, and I can understand some of it because I studied Sanskrit in school, but my comfort is in English. So I will always try to find a book uh, even if it's let's say I'm reading the Bhagavad Gita, I the books I have they have the Sanskrit script and then the translation in English. Nothing wrong with it, but I am so dependent on using English as the basis for everything that I that I do. And the more I started to realize that one, I had to sit with the grief of being disconnected with my own culture, and then that led to then acceptance, and then it led to okay, what next? And now I lean in a lot on my rituals that I was raised with as a way to reconnect. And then understanding the, the spiritual significance of, of these rituals and how much in sync they are with nature and respecting nature's rhythms and, and really understanding that for, for myself and really going back to all the memories of everything my parents had shared with me in terms of the you know mythological stories and whatnot. They're all making sense now. <laughs> And but I think being open to learning, being curious about it and being humble to say, you know, what I did was not the best way and, and being open to course correcting. So it, to me, it all started with that whole sense of, OK, I need to decolonize. And tangibly speaking, it was not four years ago, for example, that I took off from work for Diwali, for example, to celebrate so what I want to say to folks that are listening or watching is do not apologize for your culture and your religion. It's not an inconvenience for others because I've been in those spaces, especially when it comes to the tech world. So much of the work that is done is done by people who look like me and our customers do not look like us. So there is no consideration for um, holidays other than the dominant culture holidays. So anybody not being there is, a, is an inconvenience. Oh, the India team is on holiday today. So we can't do anything for the next two days. 
It's not an inconvenience. But I remember being in the industry and feeling like, oh my God, I shouldn't inconvenience my customers who I work for, who I work with, and making myself available despite everything that was going on in my, you know. So that kind of sacrifice is totally uncalled for. And we have to take the stand to, first of all, respect that ourselves and make sure that we are, again, going back to, you know, making what kind of a life are we looking to lead? Yeah. The the other point I wanted to make was, uh, again, very tangible. Teach people how to pronounce your name. Don't shorten it. You're not, you're not here to make everything easier for others. You know, it's a two-way street. So one of the things I did, for example, was reclaim my full name, reclaim uh, how I how I dress up, wearing my bindi. These are things I grew up with and I'd somehow given it up because I wanted to blend in. And then you blend in so much that you forget who you are. And that has been one of the saddest experiences of my life. And I'm so glad that I've had the opportunity and the privilege to turn it around for myself. So to me, it's about focusing on decolonizing your heart and mind, use your personal agency, be rooted in who you are, where you come from. There's a, there's a lot of power in that and personal strength in that. Invite others to understand that, understand your perspective. And, uh, you know, don't, don't think of yourself as an inconvenience. Wow, those are incredible, incredible tips. And actually, I, I want to thank you so much for being here today. And before we really? end uh, this episode, there are two questions I have for you. First of all, if there is anything else you wanted to share that I haven't asked. And the second thing is how women can reach out to you. Absolutely. Um, I just wanted, this has been a wonderful conversation, Limor. And, you know, it's made me reflect on a lot of things, my own journey, especially in the past 15 years as an expat here in the U.S., Again, one more thing about language. We have different class classes of words, migrants, immigrants, and expats. They all mean the same. But the, based on who coined the term, based on their convenience, there's a there's a dictionary dif- difference in, in definition if you if you actually refer to the dictionary. But at the end of the day, it's all the same. So I have consciously chosen, I used to call myself an immigrant until last year, and I've consciously chosen to call myself an expat. Uh, so I think that the point I wanted to make is it's a journey and every step of the way there is opportunity for us to pause and consider what is it that we are thinking, what is it that we are saying, what are we being told, to question everything and come to your own conclusions and ha- have the humility and the courage to change your opinion when you know better, like Maya Angelou said, right? When you know better, do better. Um, so I wanted to conclude by saying, you know, I wanted to share my three leadership mantras, if you will, lead from where you are. You don't have to wait for anything to show up for you. Lead from where you are with what you have. Number two, lead self before leading others. And three, lead with your whole self. Lead with your head, heart, and hands. And that's the piece. What you what you think and what you say and what you do, they all need to be aligned. And that's the whole say-do gap, right? And that's the, to me, that is professionalism. How the, the integrity of you as a human being, and how aligned are your um, head, heart, and hands. So that's what I want to leave everyone with. And folks, uh, you can find me on LinkedIn or through my website, notstartwork.com. Those are, those are two great ways to get in touch with me. Perfect. And I'll put, I'll make sure to put the links both to your LinkedIn profile and to your website uh, on the show notes. Thank you so much, Minakshi, for being here today. It's been such a pleasure speaking with you today. Likewise. Thank you so much, Limur. Wonderful to be here. 
Thank you for listening to another episode of From a Woman to a Leader. This is your host, Limor Bergman-Gross, and I want to encourage you to reach out to me on LinkedIn, Limor Bergman, and let me know. What do you think about the episodes? Feel free also to comment on Apple Podcasts and tell me what do you want me to talk about? Which guests do you want me to bring? I really appreciate that and have a wonderful day.